everybody. Welcome to the Ontolog Forum for Thursday, November 30th. Uh, today we're going to do a, uh, a different twist than we usually do on the Ontolog Forum, which is going to be uh, to encourage people to talk about their experiences implementing ontological and semantic applications and share some of the lessons they've learned. The session today has worked with me immensely qualified speakers. Uh, the first speaker will be Peter O'Kelly, uh, Research Director at BERT. Second will be John McGrath, director at Fast Search, who is uh, back in the, the big era of the search engine wars, was actually making some pretty groundbreaking strides in the uh, direction of contextual searching and semantic search uh, before Google actually came out, I believe. Uh, Gunnar Penicus is the uh, extent the XML metadata platform product manager for the system. And Roger Sippel is a luminary in the Bay Area who's had several successful startups and now the founder and chairman of a company called Above All Software. Above All Software is working with service-oriented architecture and orchestrating services, and of course semantics are a large problem when you're starting to inspect services for aggregation or composite applications. Uh, before we start uh, the, the session, it's customary to have everybody uh, just quickly introduce themselves in one sentence or two sentences. Um, so I'm going to introduce myself. I'm Dwayne Nickel from Adobe Systems, and uh, my position, my title is Senior Technology Evangelist. And I'll call out your name, and when I call out your name, if you could please just uh, repeat, uh, just introduce yourself shortly, and then we'll get the session underway right away. Uh, Kurt Conrad. Uh, yes, uh, I'm an independent consultant here in the Bay Area. Uh, a couple quick notes. Duane, I just want to thank you for doing the heavy lifting and setting this up. Um, I want to thank the panelists. Well, a lot of times when people talk applications, we're dealing with a lot of proprietary or sensitive stuff that folks won't talk about in public. So I want to thank you for sharing this. And one last logistical note, we've still got somebody who's breathing into their mouthpiece. So with that, I'll move on. Thank you. Uh, Peter O'Kelly, would you introduce yourself, please? Sorry, I'm, I missed the last part of that. Oh, I just wanted you to quickly introduce yourself. Okay, great, thank you. And let me apologize to all for the background noise. I'm afraid I'm traveling today, so I'm calling from a not very quiet hotel conference center. Um, my background is uh, I'm research director for Burton Group's Collaboration and Content Strategies service where we're focused on things at the intersection of communication, collaboration, and content management. I've been working with things in the collaboration and database areas for about 25 years. Thank you. Uh, Gunnar, can you please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Gunnar Penicus. I'm a senior product manager at Adobe Systems. Uh, my responsibilities are looking at uh, uh, managing the XMP, uh, the Extensible Metadata Platform, which I'll discuss today and also a Bridge, which is a browser application within the Creative Products. So I look forward to giving you uh, an overview of our metadata platform and how it relates to standards and uh, our partners. Thanks. Thank you, Gunnar. Uh, Roger? Uh, sure. I'm Roger Sippel. I'm currently the chairman of Above All Software, and uh, I'll be talking about our products in the slideshow, but uh, I've been uh, entrepreneuring in the enterprise software business for 30 years, including uh, starting in Formix back in 1980, and then uh, I was one of the co-founders of Vantive Software, one of the first customer relationship management, customer support, automation software companies. And then uh, Visigenic Software, we pioneered uh, uh, distributed object computing 
before web services existed and before J2E existed. It was uh, all Corba-based. And uh, that, but then when web services started up, uh, I got out of bed one morning and decided I had to uh, take one more shot at uh, getting people access to information and started above all software. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to do, ask Peter Yim to please uh, introduce himself. Peter Yim, President and CEO of CIM3. Uh, we are an internet provider uh, hosting distributed collaboration uh, in general and with putting the web forum uh, on our CIM3.net infrastructure. Uh, I'm also one of the co-conveners of the Ontolog Forum along with Neil Holmes and Craig Conrad, who just introduced himself a little bit ago. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Uh, Jim Disbro, please. And we should try to keep these short. Our first speaker has a time constraint. Maybe Jim didn't join us. Uh, Kathleen Chapman? Yes. Um, uh, I'm, I work at Boeing in um, an information architecture group, and my focus is in the area of um, controlled vi vocabularies, including all the various types, such as on Thank you very much, Kathleen. Uh, Steve Ray, please. Um, yeah, hi. I work at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, leading a division where we're worried about essentially interoperability standards in a variety of domains. Um, definitely interested in the semantics and ontology approach to standards. Thank you very much. Ian Goldschmidt. Hi, um, I, uh, I'm within Shellico Discovery Limited, and we, and myself and a couple of guys back in 92 got involved in the data integration arena, and we created a company called Constella Corporation, so we've been, and then we've recently, over <coughs> the last five years, brought um, technology from the University of Pennsylvania and University of Manchester, used to be called Tambis and redeveloped it and commercialized it into, uh, into a new technology. Thank you very much. Uh, Doug Holmes, please. Doug Holmes, I uh, work with uh, Java Professionals in uh, Southern Central California. We uh, consult uh, uh, especially on uh, artificial intelligence, semantic web technologies, and Java. Thank you very much. Uh, Lisa Colvin, please. Hi, um, I work in the Learning and Knowledge Management Group at Genentech, and my background is in, an ontologist. Thank you. Uh, Napanita Guha. Hello. Napanita on the line? Yeah, I'm on the line. We can barely hear you. Can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, very little. I, I see that you're a research director, a scholar at uh, Documentation Hello. Research and Training Center. Hello. Okay, I think we're having audio problems. You. You're very faint. Um, Attila Elke. Paul Koch. Yes. Uh, hi. Uh, I am a faculty member in 
I'm doing good. They're doing introductions of the I'm going into, so if I say, hold on a second, I'll just take two seconds to introduce myself on this meeting. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, Enjoyed doing autonomous semantic agents, uh, semantic robotics, things like that. Thank you. Next argument. And I get to do a presentation to the group. <laughs> Patrick Durasso. Uh, yes, I'm a, uh, uh, a standard person, I suppose, and I work in Snowball software, uh, uh, mainly on topics. Is it someone who's speaking on the phone? Yeah, somebody, uh, if, you're not, uh, if you're not talking, can we please mute all the phones? And at this point, um, I know there may be others online, but we're, we're a little bit pressed for time. Uh, I'd like to uh, suggest we, uh, we move straight into the, uh, the first speaker session. What I'd like to do today is actually not so much directly focused on ontology, but I would like to share um, first, uh, thank you for inviting me to join the call today, the discussion. I'd like to share a few thoughts on data modeling and how data modeling is underrated, sort of a tip of the hat there to Clay Shirky on an article I'm sure many of you read about ontology being overrated. And this, this is not a, a value judgment, and I'm not looking to uh, start any debates with anybody, but what I wanted to do for the next 10 minutes or so is share some perspectives on why I think data modeling, especially logical data modeling, is uh, is not used as broadly as it might be to be productive. Sorry again for the background. I'm running around trying to find a quiet spot here. So if you could go ahead to the um, second slide. Um, what I'm going to do here today is very briefly go through a synopsis, a summary of my key points, and then I'll take about seven minutes plus or minus to go through some of the reasons why I think data modeling is underrated. And then uh, I'll have a few minutes for Q&A. I'm unfortunately going to have to mute myself and hop in a cab, or I'm going to miss a plane after that, so I may be in and out for the rest of the call, but I'm looking forward to the rest of the discussion. And then um, the last part of the synopsis here, or the agenda, sorry, I noted I have an extended play overview for those who are inclined to look at it uh, in more detail. This is uh, a Burton Group presentation about data modeling in more detail and explains some of the things that I'm discussing uh, that I'll just be going through in summary level. So, okay, with that, if you could go ahead to slide three, the synopsis. So my basic theme here today is that Data modeling used to be seen primarily as something that database people did. It was for database design. It was for DBAs, other people, for DBMS nerds only. But at Burn Group, we've seen a pattern where it seems there's now growing appreciation for the value of logical data modeling in many domains, both technical and non-technical. So historically, as I've noted here, most people assume data modeling is about database design, but it's also important for building consensus on conceptual modeling between individuals. Uh, it's also now, with more pervasive use of XML and broader exploitation of metadata, we're seeing uh, data modeling or conceptual modeling, logical data modeling, these things are sort of interchangeable for my purposes here today, uh, being much more widely used. And data modeling is also, I've noted here, a critical success factor for people modeling in XML, a, a topic which many of you know more about than I do, I suspect. So data modeling, just to complete the synopsis here, is now a fundamental part of the back-to-basics trend that we see in application development. People are understanding you can't really do SOA applications or content-rich applications if you're not doing effective data modeling. It's also 
key to effective exploitation of emerging applications and tools. Again, SOA is a classic where we see people start running down the SOA paths without doing data modeling up front, and they invariably get themselves into trouble. And last but not least, it's essential to regulatory compliance, especially for large publicly traded, closely regulated companies on things like information disclosure tracking. So if you go on to um, slide four, I'll get into my seven-minute summary approximately. Uh, so to start with, again, logical data modeling is often misunderstood and underrated. When I talk about logical data modeling, I'm just basically saying models of things in the real world. We're going to manage descriptions of things, entities, any type of thing we wish to describe, attributes, relationships, and identifiers, and that's it. When I say logical data modeling, I mean technology independent. It doesn't, so we're not focused on implementation models here, but rather describing things that might ultimately be put into uh, some, some type of storage system or not. It's not one-to-one -one with relational databases, and a lot of people are under the impression that it is, but as I was alluding to a moment ago, it's as much about building contextual consensus among people as it is about building uh, capturing model designs for software systems. As a bonus, it's also relatively straightforward. There's some rote transformations that you can do if you've done a good job with logical data modeling to create a robust database design, too. Historically, logical data modeling in particular has not had a stellar reputation. We believe some of the reasons for that are we've had costly, complex, and cumbersome tools. Case tools, going back to those, very expensive, um, not great for what people were actually trying to do. Uh, also, a disproportionate focus on physical database design. Historically, it's not that people were perversely focused on physical database design. It's just that that was so resource intensive that uh, sometimes the logical data modeling got short shrift. So if we move on to the next slide, uh, slide five. Again, I apologize for the background noise here. I should never try and do a conference call from a uh, from a conference center, which is sort of oxymoronic. Anyway, so on to the next point there. Logical data modeling is more relevant than ever before. Again, entities, attributes, relationships, and identifiers. If you're not looking at all of these things, you're not really respecting and accommodating the real-world complexity you seek to describe, and it makes it much more difficult to establish a robust shared context with other people. So in some respects, I think we're on the verge of the revenge of the DBMS nerds in the sense that people who have been doing this for a long time and understand its general applicability appreciate the fact that it's not just for normalized text and number crunching anymore. The fact that we now have native XML data model management inside DBMSs is also a fundamental change. So we see things like XQuery, which at this point is a W3C recommendation. Um, bringing that in, it's, it's sort of the equivalent of relational calculus for document-oriented things. Again, if you don't do the logical data modeling up front, it's going to be a problem. Very strong synergy between SQL and XQuery, and again, consistent um, design approach, but all of the capabilities that made DBMSs useful in the first place apply to XML as well as traditional database models. So when people start thinking about doing things like we're going to have concurrent updates or multi-user access to things, uh, a lot of times they're now using XML as, as traditionally things we might have done in DBMSs. Now we've got the opportunity to have the best of both worlds. So uh, logical data modeling tools and techniques, again, more powerful and intuitive as well. Some of them even open source, freely available, things you can tie into Eclipse and other areas. So moving on to uh, the next slide, if you will. Continuing with the seven-minute summary here, uh, as I get chased around the Marriott Marquis in Times Square, XML-based models are useful 
but insufficient. So, again, we get a lot of questions. How do I model my business in XML? And we say basically first model your business and then figure out where it's appropriate to uh, capture things in XML as well. But the document-centric meta-meta models, if you will, are really not substitutes for techniques based on entities, attributes, and relationships. It's a cumulative build. These things are um, very useful in combination. So you can consider that some XML-centric techniques have a lot in common, as I've noticed here, with pre-relational data model types like hierarchical and network and some object databases. In fact, many of the so-called uh, XML databases are really sort of warmed over or recycled uh, object databases as well, we've seen. Uh, so continuing from there, uh, XML, unfortunately, ambiguous. So, for instance, with the ER model, there's what's a relationship set and what's an entity and rules are that and similar thing with XML. It's just not uh, as a model as it might be. And again, that's something we're having policy around logical data modeling can help a lot. Okay, so uh, if we can go on to slide seven then, the last slide, and then I will uh, mute myself. Uh, related to the ontology dimension, again, ontology we see as necessary but insufficient. That is, categorization is obviously a useful organizing construct, and by no means do I mean to denigrate what can be done with uh, with taxonomy or ontology. And we see folksonomies also being very effective in empowering people to do things without having to have formal tools going in there. But, again, from a, a logical data modeling perspective, we believe categorization is really just one facet of modeling. And, unfortunately, sometimes we see people running ahead thinking that ontology is, uh, or the use of taxonomies is a substitute for things that people use to do with logical data modeling. And, again, we find that you don't get to the necessary level of precision in describing things. So, uh, many related techniques are conducive to insufficient model details, I've noted here, and uh, that creates some ambiguity and unnecessary complexity, which leads to a need for a variety of tools to help disambiguate that later on. So the last point here is uh, we're now seeing things such as microformats, other new words people are using, uh, ranging from things inside Microsoft SharePoint, for instance, as content types or even things inside Microsoft Vista, the operating system, they're really fundamentally focused on logical data model concepts, and we think it would be a lot simpler in the grand scheme of things and a lot more effective if people just started with logical data models in the first place. Again, I don't mean to imply that this is a panacea either. It's just uh, something that having watched people struggle with the results of not doing sufficient logical data modeling in a variety of different contexts over the last 20 years or so, it's, uh, it's interesting to see people relearning lessons. So, again, I'm really sorry about the background noise here. The rest of this presentation is just for your information if you're interested in um, – quietly <laughs> reviewing more details on uh, what I've been talking about. But now I'll be quiet, and if anybody has any questions, I'd be happy to address them. Uh, thank you very much, Peter. Um, so before uh, we open up the floor for questions, I, I have a couple in mind myself, but I'd like to uh, just thank you again for presenting under very circumstances. And uh, my, my comment, perhaps if you could address this one first, uh, give other people a chance to think about it. Um, with the approach of uh, data modeling, which is a very hands-on approach, and, and being a, uh, a person who dabbles in code, I, of course, uh, am a big fan of data modeling, as, as we've discussed. Um, but I find that still there is a, an immense use for a higher level of, 
understanding or conceptualization of the stuff we're modeling. So, for instance, if I'm giving somebody a task to take something uh, out of the you know, model a database and somebody else can model XML, um, do you believe that there is a great value in having uh, the first order of logic defined in a formal ontology so that the, uh, the both projects would be inheriting from a common understanding of the domain? Um, that's a great question for which I don't have a definitive answer for you now. That's an area that I would love to discuss more. Um, yep, uh, and it's it's one that I think we need to get to, uh, to determine where there's sort of modeling value add, if you will. You know, um, but yeah, coming to canonical models that can be used in a variety of different contexts would definitely be a benefit. Sorry, that's not a concise answer. No, no problem. Uh, any other questions? It's P P D here. Uh, I have a question uh, relating to slide number seven, where you say ontology necessary but insufficient. Uh, but on that slide, you generally ontology with categorization. Is that uh, the, the the way you're using the term ontology there, or? Uh, do you have a, 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 a different definition, a more comprehensive definition for ontology? Um, actually, I'm really there representing what we see what a lot of our customers using in the field. Uh, in many cases, they consider these things to almost be synonyms. I realize that's not an exhaustive definition of the way people are using ontology as well, but for many people, that's, that's where it starts. You know, great, we did a folksonomy, and now we're going to take this and formalize it to the next level, and it's really schema plus categorization. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, great. Um, I, I thank you for your for the clarifi clarification. Uh, as far as the Ontolog Forum is concerned, we actually have, as a, as, commu as a community, adopted a, a range of definitions for the concept ontology, uh, which sort of is a spectrum starting from like. Uh, the story going all the way to uh, logic models and uh, mm -hmm. uh, logical representation somewhere in the middle of the through line with like I guess I thought we sort of being sort of next to the strongest semantics. So it'd be nice when there's like the term ontology to I'm having a little bit of trouble hearing you there, but let me let me just say again, um, yeah, I appreciate. myself and you know, catch a cab, but um, I'm very much looking forward to exploring the resources on your website. Dwayne just uh, to, gave me a pointer to that a couple weeks ago, and I haven't had a chance to go deep on it yet, but I know this is going to be something that's going to expand my understanding of the related terms, so I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Peter. And uh, okay. we'll now uh, jump on to our second speaker, uh, John McGrath, who I've already introduced, and uh, I've sent Uh, I'll pull up the slide again. 
Okay, John, the floor is yours. Thanks, Dwayne. John McGrath, hopefully everybody can hear me. Yes. Um, thank you for the introduction. Um, to sort of put my background in context, I'm a senior executive with Fast Search and Transfer and deal with strategic market development, which is heavily uh, impacted by domain-specific information uh, and much of the way we handle domain-specific information in controlling search precision, for example, deals with taxonomy and ontology and other various uh, automated algorithms in order to increase uh, the precision of our product. Um, my background has been roughly 20 years coming out of the 4GL market space, moving into search. I was one of the founders of Excalibur Technologies. Uh, Roger might remember the company because we, uh, we actually had done the first synthetic network-based uh, technology called Retrievalware, which is currently sold by Convera Corporation, um, and had developed the data blades for uh, the Informix product for text as well as for um, image at one time. If you can hit the next uh, slide, slide two. What I wanted to, uh, to focus on is basically what's been the impact in terms of taxonomies, or should I say thesauri taxonomy, and now much more advanced ontology uh, utilization in search. It's a very important aspect of the uh, technology evolution. And if uh, what this slide basically presents to you is what's been happening originally the search market space for the enterprise was rated as being somewhere between 100 and 300 million dollar market. Um, this year, it's been professed by the likes of Gartner and Forrester to be anywhere uh, as much as 25 to 50 billion dollars. And the reason why is that the use of search technology to deal with access of information um, that may not be fully and highly structured is becoming imperative, and that's addressing many different market spaces and the feature requirements in order to address the application requirements are expanding significantly. And one of the primary issues is how do you continue to improve the accuracy of the search, the relevancy of that search to the particular user. And in this particular uh, case, uh, obviously search engine and search platform companies like ourselves take advantage uh, of the use of uh, taxonomy and ontology capabilities, and I'll go into that a little bit. Uh, slide three, please. There are a couple of issues which uh, are important in terms of the advancement of search platforms where um, the concept of using this uh, ontology or metadata becomes important. One of them is in the area of user context uh, and contextual evidence associated with what we, we pretty much bundle into three different areas, the user, the application, and the information. Uh, next uh, four, if you hit. In the user's perspective, what we're doing in terms of context uh, is we're collecting information uh, quite often about the user or have information about that user, both in terms of their query access, where they're located, and the kinds of interests and patterns uh, associated with that process. And much and quite often that information affects and is stored um, in a metadata format or into an ontology associated with that user. Next. The same holds true for the business application itself where we can actually maintain and control business rules and how the application is used um, 
from information that is uh, a resident in an ontology in which we use an update. Um, next. And again, in terms of the information itself, and this is where most people are familiar with the use of it, um, and somewhat what Peter was talking about, using metadata, for example, to effectively categorize or tag information, and also use it to create statistical uh, uh, intelligence about that particular use of that information. Next. Can you read so part the, of the uh, use of the Pardon me? Can you read the title of the current slide? Can you read the title, please, of the current slide we should be on? Sure. This is for, I believe, Improving Search Through Conceptual Analysis. Thank you. So part of the part of, of the way in which we're using these tools is for um, dealing with contextual information, but also now dealing with, with more of the semantic issues and the conceptual information. The reason why these are so important for search, we're finding our number of, of issues. Three of the primary ones are dealing with moving beyond just recursive searching and into really finding answers. And in order to find answers, you have to understand um, not only the information you're searching for, but its, its usage in relevance to the domain and relevance to the user, and also what we, we determine is the scope, meaning how does it re relate within the sentence, within the paragraph, and within the page. So ontological and taxonomical information is used quite heavily in terms of the linguistic analysis to really provide the answers. We're also using it quite heavily in terms of dealing with media and other kinds of content that may not even be textually based, and being able to store rules and information associated with handling um, that type of content, Again, the place where this starts to merge between the areas of business intelligence and search is the application of ontology as that metadata for the effective warehousing and storage and access of information, similar to the way a warehouse is used for a data warehouse, something we would call a semantic index. Next five, please. What I've painted for you here is basically a very simple look at a search platform. It's pretty generic in the sense that what you're accessing is a lot of different heterogeneous information um, across the board from many different sources. One could say information anywhere. You put it through a content refinement and enrichment process, so you run it into a search index or an alert engine, and you deal with query processing and results. Uh, five, please. Beyond five. So what's happening here in this infrastructure, in the content refinement stage, you're basically using the ontology and taxonomy to apply certain logic to handling those documents, for example, in the XML formatting. You're tagging and enriching it. You're possibly extracting terms, which may actually be loaded into a metadata model or a subsequent database. You're classifying the information, and in, and in some extent, as we're moving into defining relationships within the entities that are found uh, within that content and the relationships between the content itself, which may be located in different places. Next, please. Did that paint up? Yes. Okay, the other place. Yeah, it didn't come up too well on mine. There it is. The, the other place that this is used is actually the query processing side. 
where the ontology and taxonomy can put them in better context to the user in terms of personalization, um, in terms of actually doing term expansion to improve the accuracy of the search. Uh, it may actually be used for source selection, relevancy ranking, various kinds of query control, and it could also be used for refinement of the logic in how uh, the query is processed. Next. Trying to keep this short, folks. And the third area in the architecture where it happens and is used quite effectively is in the area of controlling the presentation back to the user in terms of putting it into a, to a personalized view uh, relevant to them, in terms of controlling security, their ability to effectively access it, um, to help uh, give the application additional logic um, and as well provide, um, for example, faceted navigation of the results that are, uh, are returned by um, the search architecture. Next slide, which I think is seven. It says primary applications today in search. If we looked at it from the baseline of what's being used right now, I would have to tell you that in most search architectures, uh, the primary focal point has been taxonomy. Um, and that's mainly been used for the purposes of controlling and classifying documents, things providing common language thesaurus implications, as well as cross-language availability. Uh, creating um, more faceted navigation capabilities in, in, um, in directories, helping to improve the uh, process of dynamic clustering, um, and other different navigational aids and query refinement capabilities. But what's happening is that that's not sufficient, particularly with the size and amount uh, of information that's available we're trying to do that are much more sophisticated. Next slide, please. And so in some ways, things are being used in a much more um, uh, uh, comprehensive way. So for example, in order to help improve the use of this metadata and the expanded um, development of the ontology, it's starting to affect the application uh, much more infrastructurally. And as you can see here, some of the things which we're doing and, and have created at FAST is really this relevancy framework from the beginning to the end in terms of how it's uh, addressing the user. Um, and as you can see in the architecture, the developer, the administrator, the business administrator, and even the end user are, are um, implementing ontology uh, and taxonomy in terms of the information and knowledge stored in it to do things like, for example, weighting algorithms, creating ranking profiles for users. Um, in the case of business rules, it's used quite heavily by many of the companies uh, that provide content on the web for page boosting. Um, and in the e-tailing e space, and uh, even up to the application area in order to uh, provide a sorting and navigational aid and feedback management for that application. Next slide, please. Some of the things which, um, which we have found in terms of the usage of ontologies and taxonomies, and this was uh, developed in cooperation with the Delphi group, and you can appreciate some of this, in terms of the user's capacities today, uh, much of what you see is their ability to comprehend, at least at the, at, the, at the most simplistic interface level, four levels of taxonomy. And I think what you might find also useful is some of the perceptions and expected benefits associated with this. Um, and I'll leave you to use that for your own analysis purposes. Next slide. 
So a couple of things which I'd like to just comment on very quickly, and then I'll be done, is some of the observed trends that we've found that, and the challenges we're currently facing. Taxonomies and ontologies are viewed by many to be expensive to develop and maintain. And so in the development of major infrastructures, it tends to be something we hear about quite often. The things that are going on to help that out. Um, what's interesting is many of the content aggregators, such as Factiva and LexisNexis, for example, who we work very closely with, are now getting much more oriented to providing published taxonomy works and the necessary services to work with customers to help in enhancing their infrastructure and application. The other is the use of techniques for actually uh, capturing um, the utilization and social network activity to provide um, information to enrich taxonomies and ontologies. And then also the new, newer tools that are come, have come into commercial utilization for automatic generation, typically from a statistical standpoint. Next slide, please. We've also observed that to date, most of the work being used with taxonomies, particularly, are in the area of smart navigation. Um, most uh, of our users, for example, are saying we, we see, we start to understand the benefits of using ontology, but right now what we're basically able to do and can handle is a way to provide smart navigation. Next. And the last um, here is what do we see coming down the, the pike? Very quickly in what I would call now in terms of development and deployment is the application of what we call knowledge bases, which, are, which is really the, 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 the true direction of ontology. This incorporates both ontology and metadata, and we're basically developing it to apply for extraction, relationship analysis, and creating advanced personalization capabilities for our users. Next, I think that's it. Thank you very much, John. That was incredibly informative. As uh, someone who's been in the search uh, industry before myself uh, with the GoXML product, I, I can appreciate the types of work you have to do to, to link up and sort different file formats like uh, the rich media and database results and existing documents and kind of classify them with the same ontology. So hats off to you guys for doing this. This is, a, this is immensely amazing. Um, yeah, we have uh, a few minutes for, pardon me? I said the tools are getting better. Yes, definitely. I would agree with that. Uh, we have a few minutes for questions for John. Uh, I'd like to open up the floor for questions, and uh, if you haven't uh, introduced yourself at the beginning and have just joined, please introduce yourself uh, as you ask your question. John, this is Catherine Goodyear. I'm uh, a linguist, computational linguist in the D.C. area. Somebody's talking. Sorry, Catherine, I'm actually over the plane today. <laughs> okay. Um, I have a question about your search mechanisms and the, their efficiency. Do you have any metrics that you use to measure the efficiency of your mechanisms? You mean in terms of, I mean, there's a number of different metrics which we do measure, 
and continually monitor and benchmark based on um, advancement of the of the actual platform as well as the advancement of what it runs on. Um, and I'm very active in that, as a matter of fact. The the, the metrics tend to uh, be in two directions. One is in the actual accuracy of the search itself, and that become more than just precision and recall. That's also involved with more, more of the ergonomic aspects of faceted navigation as well. The other is in the scalability function, how, based on a particular configuration, how scalable is this in terms of query response as well as index speed. And we spend a fair amount of time uh, calculating that information. And typically, our customers, we can give them pretty good info as to how, uh, what the performance characteristics are going to look like. Um, and I have to tell you, the scalability has, has yeah, the scalability is actually, it, it extends on an exponential rate um, in recent history in terms of what can actually be accomplished. And it's not just the past, but the lot. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. Um, at this point, uh, now keep in mind, we can still, uh, during the open Q&A at the end, ask any of the speakers questions. Um, I'd like to move on to our third speaker to try and keep up with the timing. Uh, the third speaker is a colleague of mine from Adobe, uh, Gunnar Penicus. And Gunnar has been working on uh, something called XMP, or Adobe's Extensible Metadata Platform. It's a, well, Gunnar's going to tell you about it, but it, it's a pretty interesting technology. And I've actually played around with it a bit. I've got an open source project started at riaforge.org uh, to work with XMP and Java. And uh, it's been an immensely useful um, project for a, for a couple of uh, years uh, within Adobe, and uh, Gunnar will tell you all about it. Uh, Gunnar? Great. Thank you. Can everybody hear me? And please remember to tell us when to advance your slides. Okay. Great. So, thank you. Um, I'll begin an overview of, of XMP. Um, well, let's just go to the next slide uh, as I talk. XMP has actually been around at Adobe for almost five years now, almost six years. Um, we recognized very early on that there was a need um, in our communities, especially the creative community, around asset management. And one of the needs there was around just being able to, to better control uh, your assets and also uh, have better integration between the Adobe product set, the desktop tools, and our asset management systems. And as we thought about this a bit more, kind of began to realize that metadata is really strategic in uh, being able to control your assets. Essentially, the way I look at it is if you can't describe it, you can't control it. And um, so over the last you know, six years, we've been uh, evolving the, the platform. Acrobat 5.5 was actually the first product that, that implemented uh, using XMP. Um, and now we have it across both Acrobat and uh, all the Creative Suite products, all the, uh, the creative products. Um, Photoshop and Illustrator and so on. So uh, let's give an overview of, of XMP. Uh, essentially, it's, uh, it's a metadata platform, and I'll go into detail about what, what that means because there's a number of elements to, uh, to it. But, of course, one of the key things about it is extensibility. And one of the, a couple key things with regards to the extensibility is that it's, it's, based, on, um, it's based on RDF, so uh, an XML serialization of RDF. We realized early on that RDF was going to be a very uh, flexible and extensible technology, and we wanted to take advantage of that. And so we took a subset of RDF. We, we made it uh, simpler, um, 
course, RDF can be very uh, broad ranging. We took a, a simplified version of that and uh, decided to uh, basically uh, put XML into uh, binary files. So the challenge that we had is that, of course, you know, from the creative side, the, uh, a lot of people, businesses deal with binary images, and it's hard to put uh, information in that. So what we decided to do was was to basically inject these binary files with XML um, and XMP specifically. So now that we have assets which can contain uh, rich metadata information that basically describes themselves. And within that framework, you also have the ability to add in various different types of um, information structures and so on, um, uh, building on top of the RDF uh, extensibility aspects of it. So, uh, so essentially, uh, you know, our tagline is really around adding intelligence to media, and we see that this is, this is the way that we do it. We actually put the information in the file itself because um, wherever that file goes, uh, the information goes with it, and so you have a lot of um, ro robustness there. Additionally, as that file moves along the workflow, um, what you'll see is that a lot of asset management vendors have uh, picked up on, being, on supporting XMP because they found that they can mine that information and, and then update their databases um, as that file moves into uh, either a repository or an archive system or a workflow system. Uh, and also, conversely, they're, they're now uh, being able to inject XMP uh, into various file types. Uh, so from a, uh, you know, I talked a little bit about the metadata aspect of it, uh, RDF-based. Uh, we're, we're in a number of uh, file formats, uh, a lot of uh, binary file formats, JPEGs, TIFF. Uh, we're also in PDF and a lot of the uh, native Adobe file formats as well. Fundamentally, uh, XMP can live in any file format. Uh, we just started to work on uh, the initial file formats that, of course, Adobe supports and that our, our customers uh, were asking for. So from a platform perspective, um, we've at the outset made sure that XMP was uh, openly available. So we published it as, a, as an open yeah, public standard. Could you please mute, please? Okay, I'll just I'll just keep going. So from a from a platform perspective, um, we look at it uh, as you know the goal there is being open so that we can drive adoption because adoption uh, drives interoperability between our tools, our partners' tools, uh, and standards organizations as well, and I'll talk a little bit about how standards organizations work. Could you go to the next slide, please? So when we talk about XMP, there's a lot of different aspects of it. Uh, there's the framework itself, which I, I gave a brief overview, the packeting technology, with, which is how we inject the XML uh, into specific file types, and that's all documented, open, publicly documented, which is part of the specification. Um, the SDK, uh, which is open source, uh, and we're working on a new one now, uh, which is our labs uh, posting, uh, which allows, uh, which I'll talk a little bit about more in, uh, later on. Um, and then the human interface for dealing with metadata, which is really the extensibility within the Adobe products to create what we call custom panels. And these are um, how standards organizations can quickly implement their standard within the Adobe toolset. 
which has been uh, very well received. And we talked about the platform. Next slide, please. That would be number four. So um, we talked a little bit about uh, based on W3C uh, RDS standards. And I think this is really where it starts to get interesting around um, how we can uh, interface the XMP platform and technology with some of the ontology work that's, that's going on. Uh, we're just starting to investigate that right now. And uh, again, having the open source approach with our libraries out there, hopefully will foster some innovation um, and some interesting ideas and uh, collaboration. Next slide, please. So here's here's a, a code snippet. Uh, basically, what this is is, is a is a PDF, a very simple PDF file where we've added metadata and then we've just opened up the PDF file to see how it's stored. Um, what you'll see here, just to give you an idea of how this works, is the first four lines are basically the PDF um, uh, uh, code, um, and then the fifth line is where we have a unique identifier which identifies that. Um, there's going to be an XML chunk that XMP metadata is going to follow. So we call this the, the, the packet. You know, so this is indicating that a packet is, is, is next. And then uh, we talk in the next line is about what version of the, SD, of, the, of the SDK that's used to write this. And then we start going into the descriptions and storage on how different uh, properties can be stored uh, within the XMP structure, uh, basically using uh, XML serialization of RDF. So here we see, you know, namespaces. Um, you know, we have a number of, of, of standard schemas that we support uh, inherently within Adobe products, such as Dublin Core and so on. And there's another slide. And I think the next slide will, will show that. But basically, this gives you a quick overview of how the information is stored. And of course, this this is best accessible through uh, the SDKs that we provide. But also, you can do a, a just a, a raw um, text analysis of a, any file. And once you find that unique identifier, then you can parse out the XML that follows. Next, please. So here's a, an overview of the schemas uh, that we support in the existing Adobe product set. Um, Dublin Core, of course, uh, IPTC, which is a, 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 a important standard in the news and photography world. We essentially uh, synchronize with EXIF information because EXIF is uh, more binary-based. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of these, but what you'll see is that it, it covers the spectrum from, from description to uh, starting to, to look into workflow-related uh, metadata, um, such as media management and so on. And then we've also expanded it into uh, descriptive metadata for, um, for things such as edits, for example. So if you're familiar with Camera Raw in the photography world, you can do non-destructive edits on a, on a Camera Raw file by specifying what those edits are in the metadata which is actually a very interesting approach to, to, uh, to editing. And then some other, uh, some other ways in which the tools themselves capture information, such as Photoshop history, which is used in the, the forensic world to capture changes that are done to a Photoshop document. Next slide, please. And here's, here's a part of the platform uh, effort was around engaging standards and, and having standards build uh, on top of the XMP platform and essentially use the XMP model of extensibility to describe their standard. Uh, and what we found is uh, they've been pretty receptive because of the extensibility of the Adobe toolset, they can very quickly and easily implement their standard within a set of tools uh, by using the, the custom panels, uh, the custom UI capabilities in the products. And as you see here, it actually spans a range between 
when the actual asset is created, for example, from camera capture, capture um, to uh, you know, keywording, for example, with that as it passes through a submission process and maybe into you know, a layout and an advertising workflow, and then you know, out to archive. And so what we're seeing here is that we're, we're trying to uh, have the standard be applicable across the workflow from creation to, um, to reuse uh, to archive. Uh, next slide, please. Slide number and here's, eight. Yeah. Here's just, a, I'm almost done. Here's a quick overview of the partners uh, that we've worked with in the past couple of years and that have implemented uh, um, being able to interoperate with XMP um, from the tool, from the desktop tool set that Adobe provides. Next slide, please. Nice. And so here's really uh, sort of the call to action uh, that I think would be interesting for this for this group. Uh, we have a, a SDK available. Um, it's a, a beta SDK, oh, and essentially what it allows is the ability to inject uh, this metadata into various different file formats, inject, modify, and read. Um, so those those key uh, actions. And uh, we'd love you to take a look at this and, and give us our feedback and and, and, uh, and let me know. Next slide. I think that might be it. Yep. Thank you very much, Gunnar. Thank you. Um, I, I have a question, uh, but before I ask, I'd like to give uh, others a chance to ask. We have uh, four minutes for questions before we move uh, on I have to Roger a, I have a question. Pat Cassidy here. Um, uh, how large is the set of predefined tags that you use? Um, so I had that schema slide there, and so there it looked like there was about uh, – Ten different schemas, and you know, within each schema, you'll see. Um, I just passed it. Uh, uh, it'll it'll depend. So for Dublin Core, I think we have like you know the ten, the top ten uh, elements within Dublin Core. IPTC probably has a set of uh, you know twenty or so. So uh, you know, overall, I'm looking at hundred. How many will you see? euros for the state in. Um, somebody, we're still getting some background noise. Uh, as, any other questions for Benner? And if you haven't uh, previously... Yeah, you know, complete this out. Uh, so we have to go up to some years. Sounds like we're getting redirected Skype packets uh, in this uh, conference somehow. Oh, right. This person hmm. probably isn't or even part of this conference. Um, so I, I had a question too. Um, a lot of the, uh, the uh, economy schemas that are actually used in XMP um, seem to derive from different sources. Has anyone done any work to uh, kind of link these taxonomies to a higher level of logic, such as uh, uh, Dolce or Sumo? Separate mm. ontologies. Uh, I, or should we issue a challenge for somebody to do that? <laughs> I think it would be a, a challenge. Uh, I know that there are some partners who have been looking and are working on developing uh, semantic-based um, asset management systems that build on top of XMP. So they're essentially taking advantage of the ability to mine the information and pull that information into their systems, and then once it's in their systems, they can they can hook it up with 
you know, whatever approach that they want to, to massage the data with. And then conversely, which I think is uh, important, is, you know, if that data is updated or changed or interacted with um, by the customer, that it can be pushed back down into the asset. Because what, what's important from perspective is that our, our customers sit in the tools all day long. And so the, the value is in providing that information in the context of the tool. And so if they can... Venezuela says OPEC December oil cut could be up to $500,000. It's annoying, but we have to talk over top of it and louder. Okay. <laughs> so, um, if, so it's important that the information be shown in the context of the tool. Um, so, uh, uh, so basically, we're providing, you know, a set of tools where a partner can pull that information out, change it, and then push it back into the into the file, which will then show up on the on the uh, the customer's desktop, and they can interact with it there. Okay, thank you very much. Um, we're going to move on now to the uh, the fourth speaker, Roger J. Sipple. And uh, I've met Roger before, and Roger greatly impressed me with what he's uh, done, and also having the foresight to do the uh, above all software projects several years before uh, the concept of web services has really become mainstream. Um, the the concept of this uh, company, above all software, uh, really relies on ontology and semantics uh, being pre-agreed upon or having some common level of understanding uh, before one can start inspecting and aggregating services to build composite applications. If I build a service, for instance, I must uh, somehow communicate to somebody using software like above all uh, what the service does in terms that they're going to understand and infer from that what I want them to infer. Uh, Rogers had 25 years uh, in the in the industry, probably 30 years, uh, I guess, by now, and uh, he's well known in the Silicon Valley area. Uh, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce Roger and turn the floor over to him. Thanks a lot, Dwayne. And uh, on slide one, you'll see that uh, I'm going to talk about the SOA concept, but uh, it's going to be very real-world SOA discussion, and I believe that the end game of, of SOAs, why you would build an ontology and have a service-oriented architecture uh, implement that ontology, is so that you could uh, build com what we call composite applications, and that's a, a but neither of those terms existed when we started. Uh, like Dwayne said, web services was, was new. You, could, you really had to look hard to find any anywhere, uh, uh, but uh, composite applications and SOA are, are terms that got coined. Uh, as we build the company, and we also are problems we solve and, and what platform we build to solve them. On slide three, you can see uh, a picture that explains the problem. You know, in the 80s, we built a lot of database systems, and then in the 90s, we either bought or built lots of applications with application servers that sat on top of those database systems. And now we're confronted with the problem of needing to get to all, a lot of that data. Slide four shows the reality is that, uh, especially in environments like call centers or, or what salespeople have to deal with, they have to look at a lot of different screens. They have to look at one application to Siebel maybe to look up a customer's information, then maybe look at SAP to see if the customer's got anything on order, you don't want to sell him three-jet engines if he's already got five on order and he hasn't got them yet. 
you might need to look into a mainframe application to solve the common problem that gets turned into a case that takes them a while to research and resolve. So, clearly, next slide. The best tool that we can give to people now that we probably through the business logic and the application server layer of that system might be directly to a database. It's probably combinations of those things. So on slide six, you'll see um, how we do this. And what we discovered, and I'm embarrassed to say this wasn't obvious to me when we started the company, uh, that, that there has to be a, a four-step methodology to do this, which we call mine, refine, assemble, and deploy. I was hoping that really all you'd have to do is read in WSDLs uh, and uh, then put those into a, a repository and, and, and drag and drop from that repository into a nice human interface building window and uh, snap things together and boom, you'd have a composite application that can talk to Siebel, SAP, and DB2. Uh, what, what surprised me was the requirement for this refine step. And uh, I'll go into that quite a bit. But uh, the, the next slide, uh, slide seven, discusses what we now call the, the SOA enablement gap. That you start off with what you've got. What you need to do is model it up, is the phrase we use, to what you want. So in other words, what you really want is uh, an object in your repository that's your customer, another object that's your order, another object that's your shipment. And you want to build composite applications from these high order, high level business objects, if you will. But you don't usually get those. What you usually get in terms of web services is a web services layer on top of APIs or on top of SQL. And you really uh, oftentimes have to do quite a bit of modeling. And slide eight, you can see how you might have to, uh, to create a customer object that has an operation add customer or an order object that has a, a place order uh, 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 method, if you will, or get order status method or operation that you might have to model up from three different Siebel APIs or three different uh, SAP BAPIs or Oracle APIs. So this is quite common in what we've discovered. When you try to build your ontology of the model of the corporation that is suitable for building composite applications, you have to go through this refining stage. So not just reading in WSDLs will suffice. So let me talk uh, on slide nine a little bit about uh, the platform that we built. And slide 10 uh, will show that uh, we have tools in our product that lets you do this mining and put it into what we call our SOA repository. And that's really where the ontology of both what you've got and what you want inevitably lives. You model the web services and uh, that you've got, and you continue to model them up until you get them up to the models that you want. And that that model that you want is actually probably more akin to the logical, high-level logical modeling our first speaker was talking about. So uh, we're uh, of the belief 
and, and, and uh, religion, actually, that you're probably not going to get to your SOA by doing your high-level models and trying to figure out how to fulfill those models with real systems. You're, it's probably a waste of time to do that. You're probably better off to go with some real-world problems, find out what web services you've got or APIs you've got or database schemas you've got, and model them up to meet some user requirements. And those high-level objects that you model up to achieve, that's really your SOA. That's the, those are the models you probably would have built top-down if you were omniscient enough to do that. But I don't think any organization is smart enough that no one knows what those ideal objects are. You might as well start with what you've got and model toward uh, what people are saying they need in terms of access to information. So slide 11 shows part of our mining operation. Uh, this is uh, the tabs up at the top. You know, you can read from WSDLs or UDDI servers or XML schemas or uh, databases because we'll turn a database into web services. Uh, stored procedures, we'll turn those into web services. SAP BAPIs, Salesforce.com APIs, Siebel APIs. We will often uh, be able to have what we call knowledge packs that will web service enable and even go further and read metadata out of these systems to make very intelligent web services. Uh, slide 12, you then go through this refinement stage that I was mentioning. And on slide 13, you can see a little bit of it. Here might be the schema for a customer from SAP, but an account from Salesforce.com. They have a lot of data that is looks the same, but it might semantically be identical, but uh, might semantically be different in some cases. It might overlap in some cases. It might not overlap in other cases. So you really want to create a schema of your ultimate customer that might include some data from each of these, and maybe some data transformation has to take place. And so. On the next slide, uh, you'll see how we uh, can model the different kinds of, of data and do this resolution. On slide 15, uh, what this slide's trying to say is that we can take two different elements and let you do a, 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 a transformation uh, using point-and-click tools. And if worse comes to worse, you can write a little JavaScript to do exactly the kind of transformation you want as you model up from what you've got to what you want to create these uh, objects. Slide 16 just shows a little more of that, and I won't go into the details of it. Slide 17 uh, just shows a little bit more of, of modeling up. And this is really imparting semantic knowledge to your SOA repository. Uh, slide 18, a little more of the same. Sorry, my marketing department threw more slides in here than I meant them to. Uh, slide 19 shows uh, uh, some more of the tools and user interface that we use to remove the data redundancy, normalize structures, and come up with a common schema for customer order and shipment. And then on slide 21 is where we start talking about assembling these now high-level business services into composite applications. Uh, slide 22 shows the process of, uh, after you've built up a repository, if you could drag a customer into a form and boom, we render it. We interpret the XML schema and render it uh, in terms of what operations are available on it. We turn those into buttons. 
And so you could click the Get Customer button, and you'd get all the customer information at the top of uh, slide 22 screen. Uh, but we've also dropped the Get Order operation from the order object that might be derived from a combination of SAP and Oracle into the bottom part of the screen, and that line, that blue line with the uh, dot on it that goes in between them, that's uh, imparting more semantic knowledge. That's imparting uh, actually what the first speaker had in the slide as the relationship. And we actually called it the same thing, even though we started this about five years ago. That uh, much like an entity relationship model, but this is not a, a relationship between just two pieces of data. This actually is a relationship that joins customer to order via an operation, and in this case, the operation that was dropped in there was get orders. So uh, now when you uh, click on the query customers button after filling in some query criteria, you'll not only see that customer's information from Siebel, but you'll see his orders from order information that might be composed from uh, SAP. Slide 23 shows the vision into this form. The uh, SOA repository view is now on the left, and uh, what's on the right is the form put into uh, sort of an internal view mode so you can see what the query inputs would be and what the data sets would be and how they're bound to the graphical controls on the form. And slide 24 talks about deployment. Once you use our products to build these kinds of forms, then you can deploy them in terms of uh, uh, PDF forms and into Microsoft Office, into rich client forms, into web client forms. Uh, we uh, have various uh, different uh, abilities to generate different deployment uh, platforms. Um, and, and the most popular is our web server product, where you just deploy the form to our web server, and it's available uh, using a browser. But a uh, surprising number of people, particularly call centers, like these ActiveX controls believe it or not, because they get a much richer uh, user interface experience. A lot of these people don't even like to touch the mouse. Um, slide 25 uh, shows a good example of a deployment for a salesperson. Uh, here's a salesforce.com screen, and we can actually deploy into the user interface of some common applications like salesforce.com or Siebel or Remedy. Uh, this top part of the screen is, is, is the Salesforce.com application, but you can create little windows. And we call these enterprise mashups. So these uh, uh, little uh, graphic, colored graphic items on slide 25 here that uh, show credit ratings and, and such like that, those are bound to uh, our uh, composite server product, which is actually serving up XML and SOAP messages for composite objects that are in our SOA repository. And then the bottom part of it is one of the user interfaces that was built using the, the screens that you saw just earlier. And in uh, slide 26, it shows a similar thing, except we're living inside of a remedy screen. But we can basically turn these standard applications into composite applications. We can basically uh, mash up Salesforce.com, Remedy, Siebel, uh, if you will. Uh, slide 27 is another screen. I think that's a Siebel screen. Uh, again, showing the, the customer date at the top and then the order and items on order information down at the bottom, having come from three different enterprise systems. And uh, slide 28, uh, there's some more slides after that that I'll, uh, I'll skip and leave to you to take a look at if you like. And uh, at this point, I'll take questions. Thank you very much, Roger. That was, uh, that was quite insightful. 
Um, I've got uh, the first question for you while uh, others are, are gathering their thoughts. Um, when you map services from multiple different uh, 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 service types from, you know, SAP, CBOL, uh, web services, etc., when you get to the actual data components or the data uh, parameters that have to be put in and out of those services, So it'll 
map one of the numbers into both of the numbers, make both the web service calls, then combine the resultant data. Uh, so that's quite often a kind of web service that we will model up too. So if we have two systems that have a model of a purchase order, and you actually need some data from each of the systems in your ideal purchase order object, as you model up from uh, those two uh, purchase order systems to the ultimate purchase order, you would also be modeling up an operation and you'd be modeling up the inputs. And uh, you might have to use one of these resolution tables. The other side of the equation, which is to uh, implement stuff out of necessity, because after all, you know, this stuff does go on today in the real world. And it, it's kind of uh, interesting to see the dichotomy of the, uh, the groundswell of implementation kind of meeting in some places the high-level analytical and theoretical abstract work that we do in the Ontolog Forum. So uh, do, you, do you guys have a sort of higher-level understanding of things like, um, you know, person, company, uh, uh, order or, you know, transaction identifier, et cetera? Well, um, if the uh, um, modeling up requires uh, that you create such a number, uh, in order to create the model that you need in order to build the composite application, then you would do that. Then basically that resolution table I described, you'd have, you'd have a third column that is the new number, right? Now, I know there's some okay. some products, uh, for example, for the banking industry, where actually uh, as, a, as a group, the, those uh, banks had to form a consortium and decide on certain numbers. Uh, you know, funds transfer numbers and account numbers, and they, they had to come up with globally unique uh, numbers for certain kinds of things where their internal systems might have had other numbering systems which, you know, were, were not shareable and, and tradable among each other. So they had to come up with a, a standard uh, type of number and standard resolution mapping tables. I think the barcode kind of industry had to do that for products on the shelf of Walmart and stuff as well. Uh, we don't do that. It's not part of our, our product per se. We give you the tools, so if you need to do that for whatever, um, you know, additional uh, identifiers or metadata on your data that you need to create, you can use our tools to do that sort of thing. But we don't, uh, in, in particular, our product doesn't, you know, lay down a requirement that there be uh, unique I identifiers for as you model up to the idealized customer, we don't require that uh, we have a unique ID on that customer. It's uh, You probably already have one in that customer, and it's, it's up to you to model it up to a, a, a size, shape, and content that works for the composite applications you're building. Oh, thank you very much. Um, for, first, I'd like to call. Is there any other uh, questions for uh, Roger? And if you haven't uh, introduced yourself first, uh, please introduce yourself as you ask your question, because we have an unknown number of people on the call. Hi, this is uh, Lisa Colvin, and I really enjoyed your presentation. I was wondering if you could elaborate. You At the end, you talked about categories of semantic interoperability, problems that could be solved. Um, have you thought about modeling those, like making a high-level model that people could then reuse? I guess this is more of a follow-up question to the last question. Uh, so it's yeah, sort of a um, kind of bottom-up, but also a little bit of top-down? Right. Um, we are uh, working on that. I mean, uh, 
the, from the bottom-up point of view, <clears throat> what we have is uh, what we call our transform library. So uh, basically, <clears throat> as I said, you can you can always write a little JavaScript if you really, you know, if you've got a part number. And what you really need to do uh, in order to make it the input, you know, you have a part number in in uh, SAP, but in order to use it to query Oracle Financials to find out what the cost of that part is, what you have to do is shave off the first two digits and the dash, <laughs> and then use the rest of it to uh, use as the key in, in the other system. So uh, a lot of times it's it's a, a, a an arbitrary sort of transformation like that to, in order to achieve semantic interoperability between two systems. So, uh, you, you know, you can't build a library of those things, but what we do have is a library that can de uh, converts date formats, converts time formats, converts money, uh, you know, from dollars to euros. You know, so we, we, we've got a whole uh, library of things so that when you're uh, trying to do a, a query in an operation and you're going to uh, put a, a range of dates or a range of uh, uh, dollars in there, but some of the systems have the money demarcated in euros or have a different date format. So we have uh, transform libraries that uh, you can pull these operations in. And that little blue dot in, in the join that was in the form there that joined from customers to orders, it took an order number. It took a customer number out of the customer uh, type and used it as an input into the uh, order system to find the orders for that customer. The little blue dot is where you would assign a one or more transforms to occur. And uh, in the other screens that I went through quickly because we had limited time, there's uh, point-and-click tools where you would put transforms on, on these different lines or combinations of lines. Uh, so we have, a, uh, from the bottom-up point of view, we've, from our experience of doing lots of transforms, uh, we've built this library so people don't have to write them. Um, from the point of view of top-down, uh, that's a little bit more of a research project, and that will probably be a book someday, as to what are the semantic uh, interoperability challenges. And uh, I, I sat on the board of Homebreaker's uh, third company, Cohera, and, and he was trying to tackle that problem uh, in that company in the 90s uh, with a heterogeneous distributed database. And it was, it was the same or similar set of problems there. The, the customer number in this table of this database might not be the customer number in that table of that database. We're dealing with that same heterogeneous uh, um, mismatch uh, now, but at the web services level, and it's mostly because the data is coming from those same two databases that he was trying to join together using a, a distributed uh, SQL query language. Uh, so um, we're, we're identifying the patterns now and the ones that I, I talked about earlier to Dwayne's question where sometimes you need a resolution table. So the, uh, sometimes you don't, sometimes you do, sometimes it's a lexical transformation, sometimes it's a, a, a lookup in another system that exists, sometimes it's a lookup in a system that does not exist and you have to create this transformation table and come up with a, a standardization system. So at some point I should at least write a long review article or something about um, all the, the ways to resolve uh, a semantic uh, heterogeneity and, and mapping those semantics. Uh, I was at a talk where actually Mike Snowbreaker spoke just last night at, at Berkeley where he claimed that uh, just doing the join between two data sources was about 5% of the work. The 95% of the work is getting this semantic interoperability accomplished among the different systems. And how we have managed that is all these tools that we have in our product line for this modeling up. 
and mm -hmm. it, it's, it has to do with the transform lines, you know, converting. Sometimes you're converting three elements into one element. You know, you're, you're, you're taking a, sometimes part numbers are really the concatenation of three separate fields. So sometimes you're breaking those apart. Sometimes you're putting them together. Uh, so a lot of times it's lexical, and uh, but a lot of times it requires lookups in other systems. And uh, usually those other systems exist, but sometimes they have to be built. Great. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Um, at this point, I'd like to open up uh, for anyone to ask any of our uh, panelists uh, questions on ontology and semantic subjects, uh, including anything related to the uh, presentations you've seen. Well, this is Pat Cassidy. Uh, I, I have a question. question. Oh, yes, you please. go first, go ahead. No, you go first. Me? Oh, okay. Well, uh, yeah, I, um, the um, issue, is especially um, the one the last speaker, Mr. Sipple, spoke about of um, mapping databases to each other. Uh, we, uh, those of us who have been working on upper ontologies, um, are convinced that the best and probably the only way you're going to do that is to have some common level uh, ontology level that represents the meanings of those elements. And then, and then you map once from whatever the database happened to be to the common level, and that provides you with the interoperability. But um, although you alluded to some sort of things like that, it doesn't sound like you're actually uh, going into that particular methodology. Um, do you, has there been a discussion about having your, your common meaning representation in order to do the mappings for you? Well, actually with our tools, you can go either way. You can, you can model, uh, you can start at the top and create your idealized uh, objects and then uh, model down, if you will, uh, go uh, then try to figure out, okay, how am I going to implement this, this notion of a customer with its 48 fields that we've decided that we think uh, a customer needs to have here at uh, General Motors, and we're going to then go try to figure out how to instantiate a customer and how to do, uh, say, seven standard operations that we want. We want find a customer, find lots of customers based on query inputs, delete a customer, update a customer. So you'll you can try to do that. You can try to invent sort of your idealized vision of a customer and your idealized operations on a customer. And again, you may not be dealing with databases. I mean, I just that was one example. You're probably not going to be allowed to talk to the SQL databases directly for most of the data that you're going to deal with in an enterprise uh, here as we sit in 2006. You probably have to talk through the application server. So you can't talk straight to SAP's databases or, or Siebel's databases, it's, it's not allowed. It's not advised. You'll get wrong answers. Uh, the schemas are set up for their application server. So you need to talk through the objects and the methods of the objects in their application server. So you can, you can try to model things ideally and then go implement your models of your schemas and your operations given what you have available in terms of operations available from the systems you have bought or built. But uh, we have never actually – I built the tools because I didn't know which way people would want to do it. <laughs> I didn't know if they'd want to build their SOA repository and then uh, of, of their idealized objects and then try to implement that ontology of, of objects using systems they had, or if they would rather catalog WSDLs and turn databases into WSDLs if they need to, turn stored procedures, turn application servers into WSDLs if they need to, catalog those WSDLs, and then – 
play with them, <laughs> build some forms that they're just going to throw away, and that's why we made it so easy to just drag and drop operations onto a blank form. You, you automatically get fields and buttons. You get inputs. You get outputs. You type in some inputs. You click some buttons. You see some outputs. You can see what the semantics of these systems are. How, what, how, what do these operations do? What do you have to type in, and what do you get back? And I have found in, in doing about 60 customer implementations now, uh, no one starts at the top and goes down. So uh, I, I know that speaking to this group of people, that's probably heresy. <laughs> but uh, my opinion is that the SOAs that will get successfully built will actually get built primarily from the bottom up. People no, no, need no, to have a no general one, notion of where they're going, but I think yeah, no one ever has started at the top and worked their way down. Every ontology, no matter how, how high it goes, starts with the things that you can touch and feel and taste. Of course, it's just that in the past, certain people have certain people have gone from the bottom up. They've created useful structures at the top, so nobody wants to build that. But there are plenty of them out there already that can be reused. And uh, so the, the, uh, I think the issue isn't necessarily give people the tools to build one. Of course, they, they won't bother. You'll, you'll build only as specific as you need. But if there are things out there that you can make it easy for them to use, that's a different question, a totally different question. You know, and, I, and apparently I you have on Hold on a sec, guys. This is partially why we put on this panel, because there's a, there is the, the top-down approach and the theoretical approach, and it's, it's an observation that since we did this one year ago, that the gap between the two and the number of traversals uh, has, has really uh, kind of glued together now. Uh, we've seen, you know, a year ago when we did this, there was a, an almost a dichotomy of either you were top up or uh, top down or uh, bottom up in your approach to ontologies. And then with this, we see that there's, uh, you know, people starting at the bottom that are reaching out and now, you know, implementing links to those higher up things. And uh, uh, the reverse is uh, true. Sorry, uh, the, the other speaker who uh, originally asked the question, did you want to uh, add a comment to? No, no, okay. that's um, with, with that, I, I was going to pose a question to uh, Gunnar as well. Um, Gunnar, with the, the XMP, uh, because it actually is uh, defined as a concrete uh, you know, XML representation on the uh, the actual of the actual metadata for a specific uh, resource. Would it be possible to extend it by, say, adding in an attribute that uh, referenced a, a node in the Sumo ontology and said, you know, this thing is in fact an instance of this? Although the uh, you know the relationship that led to the specialization would probably not be able to be uh, visible or in inferred from that type of relationship. Could one simply add attributes into XMP to declare those types of things? Mm, um, unfortunately, I don't know. I don't know specifically, but understanding the way the, the parser works, uh, I think it it may not be possible uh, at, at this stage. Um, there may be another approach is, is maybe to to add in um, add in a specific field that could carry that information. Um, the way the way the, the XMP library is structured is that it uh, um, it, it makes an assumption that uh, the metadata is about that image itself, uh, and hence the resource uh, field is is double quoted. So um, 
if you were to add in a, a property and that property were to carry, uh, uh, you know, pointers to other resources, that, that that's maybe one possible workaround. Let's say, say for instance, in uh, something like Dolce or Sumo, you had a, uh, uh, you know, node of the ontology that uh, represented something like a uh, geographical uh, coordinate at just a, an abstract high level. If somebody was tagging something with XMP metadata, uh, is there a way to actually, uh, you know, declare in the actual XMP uh, through either maybe namespaces or other mechanisms that uh, that the uh, metadata declaration you are making is actually a specialized type of that geographical location metadata? Yeah. So, def so definitely, from a namespace perspective, XMP is extensible. Uh, so that you can, the XMP framework will allow you to carry multiple namespaces. Um, so as I, I mentioned, the schemas, uh, and when I talk about schemas, I always, you know, assume that schemas contain so multiple namespaces. So, so XMP can carry, you know, the Dublin Core and, and um, uh, you know, the, the uh, Photoshop namespace and other namespaces. They can carry custom namespaces as well. So you could have that carry that, that information and refer to that other um, description. Great, that sounds interesting. I like that. It's also interesting with the uh, the fast search uh, methodology too of having, you know, multiple uh, you know contexts of the person doing the actual search, and in their search they may want to find something that they classify slightly different from another user. It sounds like the uh, the implementations are being much more flexible towards inclusion of ontology. Uh, any further questions? We're only uh, at five minutes left. I'm sure someone must have a question if they haven't all left for lunch. Uh, Peter Yim here. Maybe I... I, I, I have a question. With the implementations, uh, does any of our speakers see your customers or your shop uh, maybe uh, converging to some of the standards, whether or maybe Oasis UPL type standards to help provide? I mean, this is sort of paraphrasing some of the questions already asked. I mean, uh, standards of uh, terminologies or, I mean, not quite concepts, but at least maybe vocabularies that help you form the hub to uh, a sort of lingua franca uh, while you map between disparate uh, database and schemas. Do you see yourself or your customers doing those? Let's ask them all one at a time, uh, okay. and we'll get uh, John to answer in one minute or less first. John? Okay, how about uh, Gunnar? Have we, done, um, uh, have we looked at uh, migrating to other standards, Gunnar? So, um, yes, yes and no. <laughs> um, so XMP is fundamentally standard neutral. However, um, the framework itself, however, uh, with the Adobe product set, we've We've just defined specific schemas as standards within the Adobe world, and as other people create new standards, 
new sets of properties that they want to uh, carry um, with XMP, we encourage them to look at the existing published set of schemas that are already uh, supported by the products and to, and to build their description um, either reusing uh, namespaces and properties so that they can build in interoperability or to define their own namespace and property and, and publish those publicly. So that way we have interoperability, but also um, people can customize to their specific standards. Thank you, Roger. Would you like to uh, have the final words on this? Or I guess Peter's logged off by now, but um, still Roger. Uh, sure. Call Peter. Roger. Uh, sure. Um, actually, uh, above all software is now about at the point where we start need to start uh, looking at the standards for repository, for SOA repository. So we have a product, our SOA repository, that holds the models of the raw materials and the models of the higher level objects. And um, when you do one of these joins between a customer and an order and establish one of these relationships, we, we maintain that knowledge as well. So the whole ontology of your SOA is in our repository. Now, when we started the company five years ago, uh, these projects, uh, standards groups, uh, were either, you know, especially in the web services area, were, were either, you know, very young or non-existent at all. So it's time for us to back up and see if we can uh, make our products uh, compliant to be a repository that not only fulfills our needs for holding the ontologies that you would use to turn your SOA into composite applications, but also uh, to um, meet the, the needs of the designers of, of whichever standard. So I guess, uh, Dwayne, you were working on the OASIS uh, standard, so I, I think we need to get up to speed on, on that. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to follow up with you on that, actually. Um, well, you know, Adobe bought my company for that, <laughs> for the implementation of that. Um, uh, Peter, are you still on the phone? Would you like to comment on that and have a last word on standards? He's uh, probably in the airport right now. Uh, with that, uh, we're at time of two hours. I just want to uh, first apologize to everyone profusely for the uh, sound quality. I'm not sure what happened today, but I've never been on a call where we've had... Uh, had this kind of a ghost popping in and out, uh, pronouncing unintelligible words in the background while we're trying to speak, and it was, uh, it was And I want to really thank all four of the speakers for uh, donating their time today and uh, sharing their experiences in this area. As we continue to work in the ontolog form in the uh, hypothetical and uh, uh, theory areas of ontology, the groundswell of people who are actually starting to uh, the need for incorporating more ontological aspects in their implementations for semantics and taxonomic classifications are starting to, uh, to see our work keep communication lines open in the future. Uh, with that said, um, thank you all for attending, and uh, we'll uh, talk to you next time. Thanks a lot, Thank Dwayne. you very much, Dwayne. Thank, thank you. you. This was a Thanks. wonderful session. Bye.